morning. My name is Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling. Good morning, Mr. Mackling. Good morning, Mr. McGarry. How are you, sir? I'm doing happy all right. Monday. Yeah, happy indeed. Uh, although, if there was ever any doubt, or if there was any doubt before that I had a golf tan, I definitely have one now. I I look like if I if I were to take my shirt off right now, you would think I was wearing a white T-shirt. <laughs> But you're not. You're wearing a Valor FC t-shirt in reality. Or a, a Valor FC t-shirt, as I heard over the weekend. By oh, really? <laughs> is it, it, va, 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 Valor? No, it's, it's Valor. No, it's not Valor. Not the Valor shirt like we had once upon a time. Did you ever own a Valor item of clothing of any sort? Sweatsuit, perhaps, once upon a time? Maybe when I was a kid. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I had something like that. The only I don't know. <laughs> Jerry, you had a velour sweat jacket once upon a time, didn't you? Absolutely, I did. <laughs> of course, of yeah, course. Yeah, but I was at uh, Meadows yesterday, at uh, and it was. I love the heat, and I can tolerate wind, but together it made for a difficult uh, run. And I actually got sunburn on my ankles somehow. That's the only spot I'm burnt. So now I have white feet as well, and a nice little red ring. So it's like I'm wearing like leg warmers circa 1980. <laughs> well, at least it's all retro, velour yeah. and leg warmers. You might as well. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, hopefully everyone had a good weekend. Uh, are we still allowed to ca- speak to our American friends and cousins? Yeah, it was uh, just hearing some of the comments coming out of this. Did, like, did you hear? Hang on a second. I pulled the clip here. This is White House Trade Policy Director Peter Navarro on Fox News Sunday talking about Trudeau. There's a uh, special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump and then tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. And that's what bad faith Justin Trudeau did with that stunt press conference. That's what weak, dishonest Justin Trudeau did. And that comes right from Air Force One. Wow. This is the same this is the same administration who on Friday suggested Russia be welcomed back into the G7 with open arms. Yeah. Really? This is how you started the G7 G7 summit was suggesting that Russia turn it back into the G8 and this is how it ended as you're on your way to break bread with a dictator on the other side of the world? I'm I'm not not sure about that. It's really sitting the wrong place with me. But if you listen to Abby Huntsman, did you hear this clip uh, from Abby Huntsman? This is brilliant. Walk down those stairs, stepping foot in Singapore as we await this historic summit with the North Korean dictator Kim Jong Un. Anthony, we- talk to us about this moment. I mean, this is history. We are living, regardless of what happens in that meeting between the two dictators, what we are seeing Whoops. right now, this <laughs> is history. <laughs> we all misspeak in this business, but uh, that's one for the ages there. Let's play the part one more time. Anthony, we- talk to us about this moment. I mean, this is history. We are living, regardless of what happens in that meeting between the two dictators, what we are seeing right now. <laughs> This is history. I don't like to laugh at uh, other broadcasters' misfortunes when it comes to misspeaking, but that that is uh, going to go into the Hall of Fame for sure. Thank sorry, you, Abby Huntsman from Abby, Fox. Uh, from Fox, very okay. Yeah, that's uh, whoops, that's fun. Um, yeah, just listen, seeing this whole thing and seeing the the continued and, and developing difficulties between Canada and the U.S., I realize that you know we're friends and friends fight, 
But uh, it kind of kind of hurts seeing all the negativity that's being hurled around. I know that there are always disagreements between the two countries, but they can all you know they can always depend on each other. Right. And I remember uh, it makes me think of you remember when Tom Brokaw explains all you got to do is go to YouTube and type Tom Brokaw X, and then it autofills explains Canada to Americans from uh, Vancouver when the Olympics were in Vancouver in 2010, and Tom Brokaw did this little five minute video that kind of summed up rather succinctly and uh, definitively the history between the two countries. And uh, th- when I think of this moment, I uh, hopefully we can get back here. In the long history of sovereign neighbors, there never has been a relationship as close, productive, and peaceful as the US and Canada. We share a continent and so much more. Speaking before the Canadian Parliament, President Kennedy summarized the relationship this way. Geography has made us neighbors. History has made us friends. Economics has made us partners. And necessity has made us allies. Those whom nature has so joined together, said Kennedy, let no man put asunder. Maybe Tom Brokaw needs to explain Canada to uh, Donald Trump. Could be. Or maybe get Charles Adler to do it. Of all the, this from Twitter last night, of all the obtuse points made by Trump and his ghouls, the silliest one. (laughs) (laughs) His ghouls. Ghouls, yes. The silliest one was the business of Trudeau holding the news conference after Trump left. Trump chose to leave hours before the conclusion of the G7 summit. That's why the news conference happened after he left. Hashtag fact. Matter. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> Ghouls. <laughs> I can just hear picture Charles saying that word. Hey, uh, as far as stuff to give away is concerned for today with Mackling and McGarry, uh, throughout the morning we have a couple of things to give away. We have four passes to the Pinawa Golf and Country Club, so we'll be giving those away all week as well. Uh, for the next four days, we have two tickets to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers game against Edmonton on Thursday. The regular season opener, are you encouraged based on, I realize preseason, but after what you saw on Friday, what do you think? Well, Chris Strebler and Alex Ross sort of flipped the script in terms of who did what on Friday night versus uh, the first preseason game against Edmonton. So uh, as Kelly Moore says, I'm not Mike O'Shea, so I don't get the final decision, but I'm guessing based on what we did see on Friday night, Alex Ross will in fact get the start. Uh, against Edmonton, uh, or yeah, Edmonton, yeah, again, two times out of three, yeah, this is the quirks of the CFL schedule, <laughs> uh, Thursday night it'll be, uh, in all likelihood, Alex Ross getting the start at quarterback for the Blue Bombers against the Eskimos. So there's no denying, Kim Jong-un, brutal dictator, but as Global Nationals, Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple reports, the North Korean leader's recent charm offensive is proving effective. The circus has come to Singapore. Uh, it's so shock, shocking for me. With just days to go before an unprecedented meeting between the real Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. They're fake. You know that, right? No. It's making the world and America better again. Rarely, if ever, has a summit focused on avoiding nuclear Armageddon inspired such a festival. With everything from Trump and Kim-inspired cuisine to cocktails 
Both drinks made with equal portions of alcohol to avoid any controversy over which is stronger. It being one of the biggest event in uh, recent world history, um, you know, we wanted to get involved with the whole uh, hype and fun that's happening at the moment. Even in South Korea, which Kim threatened to turn into a sea of fire just last year, this cafe is now using his image to sell lattes. He used to have a mysterious image, hidden behind a veil, says the cafe owner. But now he's someone who seems friendly. He is adorable when he smiles and he has a soft image. Polls suggest a growing number of South Koreans are feeling the same. Since Kim's summit with South Korea's president in April, the dictator's popularity among his southern neighbors has jumped from 10% to 31%, with 65% of South Koreans claiming to be cautiously optimistic. He seems more humane than before, but we shouldn't let our guard down, says this South Korean boxer. That skepticism is due in part to the seemingly irreconcilable positions. Trump will reportedly ask Kim to commit to a timetable to abandon North Korea's nukes. But few analysts expect Kim will ever agree to that, though he may play along for a while. They believe they've got a Trump card here, no pun intended. Uh, uh, and on that basis, they are going to see what they can milk the United States and others for over a period of time. Some suspect Kim's real objective is to reduce economic sanctions on North Korea by improving and softening his international image. And if true, it appears to be working. Jeff Semple, Global News, London. Does it feel like we're in the bizarro world right now, Brett? Uh, yeah. Yeah, when you, when you hear the fact that a festival has been inspired by the meeting of these two, it's a little weird hearing people freaking out about it and getting excited. Yeah, I don't know, man. Kim Jong-un has an approval rating, quote-unquote, of 31% in South Korea. It might not be that high in North Korea if you took people aside and promised them anonymity. One of the things that jumped out at me that Jeff Semple reported on, he mentioned the Trump and Kim-inspired cuisine. Oh? And uh, he just sort of slid that in there, but I quickly Googled it, and, and I found something here that refers to... El Trumpo and Rocketman Tacos <laughs> to the Bromance Cocktail. Restaurants and bars in uh, Food Crazy Singapore are, are coming together with weird things to enjoy while these two are there. There's a Mexican restaurant called Lucha Loco where customers can uh, have the El Trumpo, which is a version of a taco that includes a beef patty and pickles. And that's complemented by the Rocket Man, which is a taco, a taco stuffed with Korean fried chicken and pickled radish. And that's a nod to the term that Trump has used <laughs> to refer to Kim. U.S. leader, of course, famously loves burgers. So a lot of restaurants have come up with fusion versions of the classic American fast food um, yeah, and it just goes on and on. There's all kinds of stuff to enjoy. Oh my goodness. I get, hey, you gotta, gotta capitalize and, and make a buck while you can. Good on them. That, some of that stuff actually sounds pretty good. El Trumpo yeah. and Rocketman Tacos. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Difficult weekend for a lot of folks. We've, uh... All been taken back over the suicide deaths of Anthony Bourdain and, and Kate Spade for, for many folks. And this morning we're having coffee talking about our reaction to these uh, separate yet uh, connected 
news events. And uh, Jeff Braun, were you a big Bourdain guy? No, it's weird. Like this is my pulp pop culture blind spot because until he died, I honestly don't believe I'd ever heard anyone utter his name. Isn't in my that life. something? I, see, I, really as well. really? I saw his ads on TV and that, and I assumed he hosted some sort of a news show on CNN. But that's it. Well, he he transcended news and uh, culture and and food and. Uh, really was someone who, in my opinion, and Shanalee, uh, I'm interested in your take on this. He really, he proved to me uh, something that I believe for a long time, and that, and that is the best way to get to know someone is sit down and have a meal with them. And you know, and, and it's true, and he just seemed like this big, just larger than life, um, animated person, right? Just so interested in everything. And so that's why this is, I think such a such a shock to everyone like you, you know, it's it's funny because you you never know what what somebody's feeling inside right because you think him and Kate Spade they have perfect lives they have all this money success friends but children children Bourdain 11 year old yeah. Uh, yeah. Kate Spade I think yeah. had a 14 yeah. 15 year old and, and but but obviously there's something something lacking inside or something something wrong something missing yeah, when you looked at uh, that's when I saw the the global piece on Kate Spade uh, when they showed video from her home. Like the first word that came to mind for me was storybook. You know, she lived in New York, I believe, and lived in this fancy place. It just looked like something out of a fairy tale. And to think that when you think like this is what we all sort of dream about or aspire to to one day have fame and riches and to be able to live in a fancy place and. And here's someone who has all of that and has the adoration of you know, lots and lots of people around the world. And and that didn't matter, clearly. That wasn't what she wanted. She needed something else and wasn't getting it. Who knows? You know, I certainly don't want to sound like that's a criticism of her. We have no idea no. what was going on with her. And same for Bourdain. Here's a guy who got to travel the world and eat. <laughs> what a what an awesome gig. Right. <laughs> Traveling alone at a lot of times, though. It's a gentleman who had an addictive personality, had uh, drug addiction issues in his past. Once again, not judging anyone on any of this, but and it may be an oversimplification to suggest that maybe, Jerry, fame isn't all it's cracked up to be at times. Well, I think that uh, the, the fame and the money maybe didn't have anything to do with anything. I mean, a lot of the times, depression is just uh, a, a symptom of, of a, a, a chemical imbalance in the brain, something that's just not working properly. I mean, and that I think that, that shows that, you know what, maybe the outside influences don't have anything to do with the depression. Maybe there is something inside. Yeah, we try to rationalize these things. And I think maybe at times, Kelly, we're trying to rationalize uh, things that we just don't know enough about at this point in time. Still so much to learn about the brain and how it affects our behavior and, and our desires to live and not live. Yeah, I think one of the good things, if there is such, uh, that comes out of uh, something like this. With Kate Spade, I, from what I understand, I, and again, I didn't know her that well, but apparently she had had uh, some issues that were known to her family and they mm -hmm. tried to work through them. Uh, but with somebody like Anthony Bourdain, I think it's uh, the, the most important thing now is uh, mental health has never been at the forefront more than it is right now. And when it happens to somebody like Anthony Bourdain, where it's a complete blind side, then I think that uh, also uh, brings it even more into focus. So 
if, if there's going to be something positive to come out of this, it's that we will be even more vigilant about mental health issues. Jeff Braun, I wanted to point out <clears throat> before I uh, forgot here, I remember uh, about five years ago, our previous manager said to me something about the Property Brothers. And I said, who? Yeah. He says, the Property Brothers. And I said, who? What do, you, what do you mean you never heard of the Property Brothers? Aren't you one of the couch potatoes? And I said, well, who are they and what channel are they on? Well, uh, HGTV or whatever. And I said, well, I don't watch that. Maybe uh, we need to start covering more reality shows. But uh, <laughs> uh, So I just yeah. want to let you know that uh, we all have our, our pop oh, culture blind, sides, blind spots, right? Yeah. But since you weren't familiar with Bourdain, has there, yeah, I know you're a big fan of, of music. Are there any musicians over the years that, uh, that have worth... Tragedy has befallen them. No, it's weird, though, with rock stars. It just, it's so unsurprising, you know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. because it's sort of, they've got a long, sad history of dying young from one thing or another. So with the rock stars, it never really shocks me. Okay. Uh, well, you can let us know what you think. Uh, you can text us your feedback at 204-780-6868. You can email brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob. Dot com and Greg, you referenced a website the other day, Reason to Live. Reason to Live.ca. If you're struggling, you need advice, know that there's there is help out there for you to talk through these things. Please don't hesitate to reach out. The phone number 24-7, toll free. It's confidential. 877 435 7170 Four three five seventy one seventy. Thank you very much, Shannon Lee Vidal, Kelly Moore behind the glass, Jerry and Jeff Braun. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert De Niro. I'm going to say one thing: F- Trump. That was at the Tony Awards last night, and then after that, that got him a standing ovation. He just kind of stood there with both of his arms, sort of. Doing these double fists, people started standing, and I'm I'm guessing that there are some after the G7 summit who maybe uh, have that sentiment right now. I'm not endorsing anything. I'm just saying there, there are, are some. There are some who are not going to be happy. Yeah, well, even John McCain is saying Americans stand with you, even if our president doesn't. Wow. In light of some of the remarks that have been directed at Justin Trudeau following his press conference at the G7 summit. So we're joined now live on 680 CJOB by Global National's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, to give us a wrap of this weekend's G7 Summit. Mr. Aiken, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Yeah, it was a real... Uh, well, I've been covering G7 Summit since, like, 2006, and 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 Washington since, like, the early 70s, and uh, this one was like no other. And what is so remarkable is uh, Donald Trump put his name to an agreement with his closest allies... And then a few hours later, reneged on that agreement. And I don't know. This is not a left, right, conservative, liberal up or down thing. It's just, you know, you put your word to something, you're going to follow through on that. And uh, the U.S. president didn't. And that has some big implications for the next time Canada sits down at the NAFTA negotiating table. Can we trust Trump or his negotiators to follow through on their commitments? And more immediately, a few hours from now, Trump's going to meet the leader of North Korea. And can North Korea trust whatever commitments Trump might make. He's already broke America's word on the Iran nuclear deal. Is North Korea going to be taking a look at America and saying, yeah, sure, we can deal in good faith with you guys because you've got a great track record? It's it's hard to make that case now. David, I'm not in the habit of uh, making excuses for Donald Trump, but uh, reasons uh, do resonate with people. Uh, was Donald Trump plain and simply distracted 
with regard to being at the G7 summit? Was he simply looking ahead to Singapore and the sit-down with Kim Jong-un? Uh, leaders can often handle multiple tasks, would be the first thing that, that I would say. But one of the confusing things about Trump's post-G7 summit behavior, his meltdown, is that by all accounts, uh, certainly all the Canadian advisors I spoke to that were in the room or were watching the Trump-Trudeau relationship, things are going fine. Uh, we, we've seen Trump and Trudeau together in public before, and while they certainly have disagreements on some trade issues, uh, you know, personally, they were getting along. Um, I mean, I was there at the G7 summit watching the body language between the two men. Everything was fine. And then, as they say, there's this outburst uh, while he's in the plane, uh, you know, didn't have, um, you know, wasn't polite, I guess, as I'll be polite and say Trump wasn't polite enough to express his concerns about uh, Justin Trudeau's deportment uh, to Trudeau's face, has to do it on Twitter uh, while he's in Air Force One. Seems a bit odd. So it, it, was he distracted by Singapore? Uh, it's hard to say. But again, most major world leaders can handle two files at once. Was... Trudeau wrong to have this news conference after Trump had left? No, uh, Trump left early, and uh, Trudeau, I mean, it, every G7 leader holds a press conference at the end of the summit. Uh, Trudeau couldn't have held it earlier because the summit was still going on. So when the summit ended, Trudeau held a press conference. So you've probably seen the video. A lot of people is going around on, on all social networks. You know, he, Trudeau literally is, is about as polite as he can be, as as polite as Stephen Harper might have been or Jean Chrétien or any Canadian prime minister. We're, we're a polite people. Uh, and he was repeating exact phrases that Trudeau has said before in public, and he has told the president in private. So there, there could, as far as I was concerned, there was nothing new in terms of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's response to anything the Americans have done in that press conference, and certainly it was in measured tones, and certainly Trudeau didn't insult the United States president or call him out. Global National's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joining us now. And uh, David, Larry Kudlow took to the talk uh, talk TV <laughs> yeah. circuit yesterday. And essentially, and, and maybe you got a different sense of this, but my sense was that if things go wrong in Singapore, it's all Justin Trudeau's fault. Yeah, that's what it kind of looks like right now. And, you know, um, let's I think it's a given now that Donald Trump lives in a fact free zone. He's, he's not interested in facts or evidence, uh, just bluster. Larry Kudlow, to a degree, had it uh, had, you know, some reputation for living in an evidence free zone. And one of the things, you know, you hear the president and Kudlow and all his proxies go on about is our dairy tariffs. And I'm on record saying I don't think supply management serves consumers well at all. And you know, we should, we should, our dairy industry would be even more prosperous if we allowed it to compete in the world stage. That said, here's the evidence, Donald Trump. You've won on dairy. Trump is the winner on dairy. Why? Because the U.S. has a huge trade surplus already with Canada when it comes to dairy. In fact, Canada buys twice as much, not a little bit, but twice as much dairy from the United States as we sell to the United States. So you've won, Donald. You've won on that. That's great. Now let's talk about the 25% tariff that the U.S. imposes, say, on light trucks coming into the country, or the billions it gives to the sugar industry in the United States. Boeing is the most subsidized company in the entire world, gets billions from the U.S. government, state government, etc. So, you know, if we're going to have talk about facts, Larry Kudlow, you guys won on dairy. Now let's look at your tariffs and your subsidies. 
David Whitehouse, trade policy director Peter Navarro, appearing on Fox News <laughs> Sunday, saying there's a special place in hell for foreign leaders like Trudeau who don't negotiate in good faith. That's awfully strong language uh, to be using about uh, a leader of a country. It is. And, you know, if you watch that, I think one of the uh, uh, notable things is that in that little tirade is uh, he, uh, Navarro says this comes straight from Air Force One. And if you sound it, it sounds like a Trump tweet, what he was saying, you know, uh, weak, dishonest Justin, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, that's what Navarro was doing. And, you know, great. OK, that's fine. Um, Donald Tusk, who's the president of the European Council and was also at the G7 summit, said there's a special place in heaven. For Justin Trudeau. He tweeted that out last night and after uh, Navarro's comment and thanked him for G7, uh, the G7 summit. And really, I mean, to come back to things, I mean, all joking aside, you know, the G7 summit has been sort of the bedrock of the Western alliance against all sorts of security issues, economic issues over the last, uh, you know, 40, 50 years. And, and right now, it, pretty clear, it's the G6 plus one. And uh, in fact, people are saying, you know, Trump, why don't you just have your own G3, you, the North Korea guy, Putin from Russia, and the West, those who defend democracy, the rule of law, getting along with others, um, we'll have our own meeting. George W. Bush would have called that the axis of evil. Uh, last one real quick before yeah. we go here, David. Uh, the biggest thing I think Jean Chrétien was famous for and might have been the highlight of his time as Prime Minister of Canada was the fact that he refused to go to Iraq with the United States. Does this have the potential, this however you want to call it, this standing up to America by Justin Trudeau, does this have the opportunity, could this be the chance for him to turn his image around, his, his faltering polling numbers, uh, turn things around for voters and his perception here in Canada? Now, maybe we'll see. I mean, certainly the motivation of the Trudeau government is not the whatever poll numbers. And it's an arguable point that there's faltering poll numbers. I mean, if there was an election held today, I mean, he's probably going to be the uh, prime minister. Um, you know, I mean, we'll see. Uh, but certainly, I think it's notable that his traditional opponents, Andrew Scheer, the opposition leaders, Jason Kenney, the conservative leader out in Alberta, um, have rallied around the prime minister of Canada. It's not a liberal or conservative thing. Uh, what Donald Trump is threatening to do uh, would have some serious d d negative effects for Canada. So uh, Trudeau's traditional political opponents are standing behind the Canadian Prime Minister. And it was notable, I think, that former Prime Minister Stephen Harper was also doing the talk show circuit yesterday. He was on Fox Business News and politely saying, of course, we're polite, uh, saying, you know, just really Donald Trump, this is not good for anybody here. Uh, we're not the problem. It's China, maybe Mexico. He understands that. But it's not Canada. David Aiken, Global National Chief Political Correspondent, thank you for the time this morning. Yeah, no problem, guys. Cheers. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, behind the glass, Jerry, and joined in studio now by Sports Director at 680 CJOB, Kelly Moore. Good morning, Kelly. Buongiorno, mon ami. So, uh, Chris Strevler and Alex Ross sort of flipped. The script somewhat Friday night versus the previous Thursday. Ross struggled against the Eskimos, looked fairly decent against the Lions Friday night. The Stribbler, fumble notwithstanding. Well, yeah, we'll take that. Yeah. We, we can, you know, you, yeah. you get rid of the best play and the worst play. And and yeah. Ross was clearly the better of the of the two quarterbacks on on Friday night. Does he get the start? I know you're not Mike O'Shea, and I, I heard you iterate that several times this morning, but if you were Mike O'Shea, is Alex Ross getting the start Thursday night against Edmonton? Here's why I would do it, and it wouldn't necessarily be based entirely on what you saw in the preseason. Uh, it just 
Ross by a shade is the more experienced of the two. So if he struggles, you know, and, and I'm always a big believer in, you know, if, if you have a little bit of seniority or you have a little bit of experience that, and unless it's clearly uh, evident that one was better than the other, uh, that I think that you probably go with that guy at least to start so that it makes it less pressure filled for the, uh, the, the newer guy to come in. So I, I just think Ross, to me at least, looked a lot more sure and a lot more confident of himself. You know, now, Strebler did throw the touchdown pass to Kimbrell Tompkins later on in that game, but uh, I think Alex Ross will be the guy that gets the start. So that, the Bombers, if I had to predict, yeah. So the, for those just tuning in, in case you missed it in Kelly Sports, uh, uh, talking about Bombers, and they lost 34-21 on Friday night at BC Place. You mentioned an opening fumble. What happened there? Well, he was stripped of the football. It was, a, it was a, I think it was Odell Willis, too, who stripped him of the football and ran it in for a touchdown. So it wasn't a great way to start the football Odell game. wearing number 11, which kind yeah. of threw everybody off, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yelling into the helmet cam of the, the referee, too. I mean, Odell, you know, I love the guy. I mean, he's he's great for the Canadian Football League. But anyway, that, so that's how the game kind of started. And, and, and so I think Ross deserves some credit in that that didn't fluster him, that he uh, bounced uh, bounced back from that rather nicely and uh, and did a decent, not a great, but did a decent job uh, during his playing time. I do have to tip my cap to those that were playing on defense in Blue Bomber uniforms because, as we know, there were essentially four starters, projected starters, in the lineup on Friday night. 13-12 at the half, the Blue Bombers playing against mostly British Columbia Lions, who will be in the starting lineup for them, held their own quite nicely, thank you very much. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I thought it was a very competitive game, uh, although that score could have been a lot more lopsided had those two Chris Rainey uh, touchdowns not been called back. Their special teams coverage was somewhat lacking. Fair, Fair to say. But again, we are talking about, you know, second stringers, although how many of those guys might, You know, if they're going to make the team, they'd have to be making it by a special teams. And there's a couple of starting special teamers there. Derek Jones is one guy that uh, comes to mind. So, yeah, that would be a part of their game. I think they'd be looking to clean up for sure. So 13 to 12 to me was a little misleading, but that's what the score was. So the Bombers' uh, run game also ineffective with just 57 uh, combined yards on the evening. How much of this can we expect to change Starting on Thursday with now that it's regular season. Well, for sure, I would be shocked if they're not running the football a lot uh, to take some of the pressure off of the, one of those two young quarterbacks. Keeping in mind they're going up against a team that uh, uh, is kind of one-two with Calgary to as far as the preseason favorite to win the Grey Cup. So that's going to be an excellent Edmonton team. But I think one of the reasons they do want to try to run the football effectively is to uh, also make sure that the Eskimos aren't coming back at them. And I'm going to use a term Bob Irving uh, texted to me the other day, hell-bent for election <laughs> <You know? laughs> after after the quarterback. So if there's... If you are ever going to negate the pass rush, one way you do that is with a solid running game. And uh, as we certainly uh, know that uh, Andrew Harris uh, provides that. Then, of course, you know you have Timothy Flanders and, and young Johnny Augustine is still part of the mix. So uh, I, I would suggest you'll see the, the running game. And the other thing, too, Brett, is you know that was 
an offensive line that was made up of guys who would come in if there are injuries to the starters. So uh, with the starting offensive line, I think you'll see the Bombers be a little more effective with the run game. So obviously the focus is going to be at quarterback and on the run game, but on the defensive side of the ball, um, Leggett's still not going to be back in the lineup, uh, but this is really an opportunity the way I see it for Adam Big Hill, the yes. kind of the Adam Big Hill era, so to speak, yeah. on defense to begin on Thursday night because he, he is going to be key to whatever success the Boom Bombers have on either side of the football, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, with all due respect to uh, Sam Hurl, uh, for my money, the biggest upgrade the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have made is at that position of middle linebacker uh, with the totally unexpected addition of Adam Bakehill. I just think that's going to be a huge lift for the Bombers. You know, uh, Jovan Santos Knox has another year under him, and I think he's a rising star. Agreed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, but the big thing, though, a, that's going to be out there, the elephant in the room. Can they avoid giving up that big play? The explosion plays. The explosion that, plays, yeah. exactly. The, that was uh, their, their great undoing last year, and I think the onus is, uh, is on the football team to prove it. And they'll get a great challenge right off the hop uh, from the CFL's most outstanding player who is expected to repeat that uh, in Edmonton quarterback Mike Riley. So if Adam Big Hill is an upgrade at uh, middle linebacker, uh, Bob Irving and Mike O'Shea will be an upgrade to our conversation this morning between 7 and 8. Even bigger than I think Big Hill over Hurl. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. Hellbent for election, by the way. A 1944 two-reel animated cartoon short subject uh, from director Chuck Jones who I believe was all over Looney Tunes stuff. Was he not behind a glass, Jerry? Yeah, yeah. He, was, he directed a lot of those. All right. Eight years ago, Winnipeg phys ed teacher Ken Campbell's life changed with one word. Well, three words if we're getting technical. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Ken's life changed again four years later when the generosity of a young man living in central Washington state allowed Ken a chance to defeat his cancer. And on Thursday, we tagged along as Ken met his bone marrow donor, Jake Wright, for the first time. Hey. Four years in the making. <laughs> it's good to see you too. Let's go and sit down. Yeah. Chat for a bit. Yeah. Jake Wright from Walla Walla, Washington. That's a place that a lot of people think only exists in mythology and Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yeah, we like to say that Daffy Duck lives in town. <laughs> I represent the little giant vacuum cleaner company in Walla Walla, Washington, and if you watch closely, you will notice the powerful action of this machine as it removes completely and forever all foreign particles from around the room. I realize that you may not be ready to purchase the little giant right now, but if you ever do, just remember the little giant vacuum cleaner company in Walla Walla, Washington. It's a great visit. Uh, lots of nice people. Very warm welcome. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. This incredible gift you bestowed upon Ken goes back four years. So I know the background, but for our friends listening, do you mind sharing the story one more time, Jake? Well, way back, uh, probably about five, six years ago, my uncle was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And, um, you know, when he was at his worst, um, I was thinking of ways, you know, that I could help because his twin brother wasn't a match for him. Um, and that was kind of a bummer for him. And uh, I was thinking of any way that I could help. And I donated blood pretty regularly. And uh, one day when I was getting lunch with my dad, um, there was the National Marrow Donor Program doing a registry drive at my school, at uh, my college in uh, Walla Walla. And uh, 
I said, hey, why not? And so I walked over. Uh, they did the cheek swab. And then uh, they packaged it up and uh, sent it on its way. And I was registered within the month. And then a year later, I got a match with Ken. I got the email early in the morning, about three or four, and uh, my phone chimed and I turned over and I was still half asleep and I was looking at it and I thought, this has got to be a joke. And so I said, I'll take a look at it in the morning. And when I woke up and it was a little bit fresher, it seemed like the real deal. And uh, I said, oh man, here we go. Here's my chance. In uh, 2010, I was diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and I went through uh, many months of uh, chemotherapy and it wasn't seen to be doing the trick. And so uh, our team here at Cancer Care decided that uh, my only hope really was a bone marrow transplant. Uh, so they uh, put me on the registry and within a very short period of time, believe it or not, uh, there were two matches. And uh, Jacob was one of them. I didn't know it at the time, and I didn't know where he was from. But, uh, yeah, it came up very, fairly quickly, so I was very pleased. So what did you know about bone marrow transplants at that point in time? I imagine they are very good at educating you when you're in the middle of the process. But before you'd been diagnosed with cancer, was that anything you, you knew about? You're an educated guy. You're a teacher. Actually, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't know much about it. I knew about transplants in general, but the... Uh, the bone marrow I really didn't know much about so I did go online and and uh, check it out and see what the uh, rates of success were and uh, so I was fairly educated going into it but you know make no bones about it you know it, it's very risky you know they and I knew that going in but uh, you know uh, I was hopeful. Judy Barnes is donor coordinator for the blood and marrow transplant program at Cancer Care Manitoba. She tells us we will do over 100 bone marrow transplants this year in our province. The procedure to donate your bone marrow used to be a guaranteed painful experience for the donor. Not necessarily the case anymore. For the most part, we are using stem cells that are collected by apheresis, which is what Jake had done. Uh, we still occasionally ask for the bone marrow product that has to be taken from the hip crest in the OR, but for the most part, we're looking at the apheresis product. They do the same thing, different manner of collection. Yes, one is probably less painful for the donor, so we're on to the apheresis product for the most part. And outcomes, how positive are they? Very positive. Um, you know, we often, uh, with any transplant, you're uh, mentioning a mortality rate, and they are low. They are 20% or less for the most part. I always like to give a shout out to the people that work in these programs because uh, I think it takes a different type of soul to uh, be connected to these patients. And <laughs> now I got to keep it together a little bit. Uh -huh. uh, um, well, as I, said to Ken, as I said to Ken when this was starting to happen, that Jake was going to come up, I said, this is full circle of my job. Finding a donor, having a transplant, having it be successful, having you guys get to correspond, because not all registries allow correspondence between the donor and the recipient, uh, and then finally you guys getting to meet. This is beyond amazing. So if we could have a message for the public in terms of, you know, are, are there clinics? Uh, like if I wanted to get swabbed, uh, how do I get on the registry? Our Canadian registry is one match. It's through Canadian Blood Services. Canadian Blood Services over on William has a self-swab station that is open the same hours as the blood donor clinic is, 
or you can go to blood.ca and sign up online and they'll send you a swab kit. Our registry is only taking donors from the age of 17 to 35 right now because the donors often sit on the registry a long time before they're called upon to donate and we just don't want elderly donors. Jake was 22 when he donated, perfect age. People know who you are, is your story, is it uh, legend and lore in Walla Walla or, or what? Well, there was a uh, there was a little bit of you know like a personal interest story that got featured in the paper, um, and uh, there's a couple of people that recognize me uh, in my uh, family and friend circle that know uh, that I did the donation. But around Walla Walla, it's just kind of uh, you know people ask every once in a while, but I don't I don't tell it as often as I've said uh, talked about it the last couple of days. Ken, you've taken off your sunglasses at least twice I've maybe missed a couple other times this is still overwhelming for you well it is you know when I when I just said you know that this man saved my life it it, it chokes me up a little bit you know like I know that that's what he did and and this has been going on for you know four years but it is it's very um, it's overwhelming sometimes to know that somebody has done this selfless selfless thing to to share their 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 dna to save my life so it is it's it's very humbling that's a story that started four years ago thursday jake wright and ken campbell met for the first time at the airport here in winnipeg we were invited along we also met up with them at cancer care manitoba on friday and it's been a weekend reunion brett between uh, ken and jake and it's incredible to see these uh, two men together. And it's an incredible story. Very, very privileged to have uh, been invited to share it with you all. A new app will soon give you another option for a ride home. Another ride-sharing service will soon be entering the Winnipeg market. And it's called ReRide, set to launch here this Friday. We are joined live on 680 CJOB by ReRide Technologies CEO, Reben Nuri. Mr. Nuri, congr- or welcome and thanks for joining us. Oh, did we lose him? Reben, are you there? Hello? Yes, I'm here. Can oh, you hear me? I can hear you now. I, I did something wrong. Sorry about that. Technology sometimes is not my friend. Um, so you can, it's a good thing we're talking to somebody involved in technology because you can help me navigate this. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? Excellent. Reride. I remember. I saw an ad for this, I think, on Kijiji, something like six months ago. You were looking for drivers. How did that search for drivers go? It went pretty well. We actually have about over 150 applicants. Uh, I can't give you how many we approved and how many is like on the road right now because of our competitors, but we have quite a bit of drivers. How many cities do you operate in now? Uh, Winnipeg would be our first. However, we we do operate occasionally in Vancouver. We're giving away free rides uh, upon request. So, Reben, one of the things that uh, I'm always curious about is why take a ride share over a cab? The thing is, a ride share is a lot easier and simpler. A tap, tap of a button, you can get a car right to you and you can track it. And the other thing is, it's really affordable and it's everyday people. Uh, you don't have to you, you engage in conversation with a person compared to, with all respect to taxi driver, but it's just a different feeling. Um, with a cab driver, it's a quiet ride, but with a, uh, with a person that is 
driving you is different. So speaking of different, what's going to differentiate you from the other ride-sharing services that are in our city already? Uh, we have unbeatable prices. Uh, we're actually going to make it a lot more affordable for people than the other competitors. And we, we beat any price that is going to be out there. How are you going to manage to do that? Um, well, we, we have low costs on our employees. Since like everybody in the company is uh, part of the, the company, uh, it's part of the, uh, they, they own some part of the company, right? So that's how we're able to provide that. Now, I, I tried to order a ride share, I don't want to say about three weeks ago. And from where I was, uh, and I'll admit it was, it was kind of off of, well off of a main drag. So I wasn't expecting an instant ride, but it was 18 minutes away. So I pulled up my Unicity app and I got a cab in, in two minutes. So for somebody who is used to taking cabs, I have nothing against ride sharing, but that's a tough sell for me given the availability uh, that there are so many more cabs on the road. So how are you going to separate yourself from other ride sharing services in terms of how long it takes to get one? Well, we're still new, right? Um, cab company has been around for a long time. Uh, we just entered the market. Uh, in time, you're going to be able to get a ride in like two minutes, uh, maybe even less. Uh, so it all depends. We're still recruiting drivers too, right? What's your ultimate goal in terms of the number of drivers? Uh, we want to have about 1,000 drivers in Winnipeg. 1,000? What's your, yeah. uh, do you have, when do you want to accomplish that by? Hopefully before New Year's. By the end of this year, you want a thousand drivers. That's correct. Any indication that that is uh, that that that's a realistic goal? It is very realistic by the ads we've been doing for recruiting drivers. So it's been very realistic. Uh, we've been able to recruit a lot of drivers. Joined now by uh, Reban Nuri, is CEO of Reride Technologies. Reride coming to Winnipeg this Friday. And for those that might be considering doing this, either as a as a uh, what do you call it, a side hustle or as a main uh, occupation, what kind of money can you expect to make, uh, say, on an hourly basis, Reban? Well, it's it's hard to predict. It all depends on the driver. So some drivers. Uh, work a lot harder than another, so they could be able to make $30 to $40 an hour. But it all depends on how many trips and how many hours they work and how long is the trip. Well, how is how does the compensation work? Is it based on how many rides you give? So it's based on how many rides and the percentage of the ride plus tips. Okay. Well, uh, can where can I download the app? Uh, you can download it on uh, Apple. App Store and like uh, Google Play. However, we we are giving away free 200 rides for the first 200 people that sign up, and 50% off of the next 3,000. Oh, and is there a code for that? Yes. So the code for the free ride is going to be free capital. Um, so once that code doesn't work, then the next code, which is going to be 50% off, that's what's going to work. All right, Reba Nuri. Reride Technology CEO. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on CJOB. Thank you for having me. Once again, Reride, the latest ride sharing service, getting ready to enter the Winnipeg market. It launches on Friday.
Brett, you and I are both uh, big fans of the milk. Yes. We like to drink milk with our meals. There are lots of folks who are lactose intolerant. People have changed their uh, habits to be dairy-free. Uh, but let's face it, uh, big conversation over the weekend and certainly, well, really for a decade, has been Canada's dairy industry and how it's set up. And the way it's viewed, in particular in the United States, as being uh, unfair competition for dairy producers in America. Yeah, and Canada's dairy industry could soon be bracing for some changes with the realization that there may not be NAFTA 2.0. So to tell us what Canada's dairy industry needs in order to be more competitive, we are joined by a frequent contributor to 680 CJOB, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He is Dean of the Faculty of Management and Professor in Food Distribution and Policy with the Faculty of Agriculture at Dalhousie University. Dr. Charlebois, good morning to you, sir. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking some time with us, Sylvain. Uh, the second part of that statement that Brett just read out uh, is this, and, and these are your words, so apologies for reading them back to you. The dairy industry is finally showing signs of common sense, but the political hypocrisy remains. Ottawa will need to give some thought on how to support our dairy farmers as their world is being disrupted. Is supply management as it pertains to the dairy industry over in Canada? Uh, it seems to be, uh, there's been a few key decisions that have been made in the last little while. One, in Ontario, uh, the dairy farmers of Ontario have decided to support the building, the construction of a new plant uh, funded by Coca-Cola to uh, produce its Fairlife brand. It's a uh, project worth $80 million and this is actually quite unusual, given what actually happened to Shabani a couple of years ago. Uh, Shabani is a, a Greek yogurt manufacturer, wanted to open up a plant in Ontario, wasn't able to because uh, dairy farmers uh, weren't willing to give Shabani a fair price or reasonable price for, for its milk. And so this is a complete turnaround, and on top of this, we're hearing more about farm gate prices dropping all across the country, particularly in Ontario. So these are signs that all of a sudden supply management is becoming way more flexible than it has been before. So we may be seeing the emergence of supply management 2.0. Now, I want to just revisit some of the words that Greg read there, that the dairy industry is finally showing signs of common sense. How do you mean when you say common sense? Uh, it's it's becoming more market driven. It, it, in order to make sense, you you have to realize that the world is changing, and the fundamental principle of supply management is to produce what we need. But that's fine if you're if you're supporting a food sovereignty agenda, but it makes it very awkward if you have an open economy like ours. Uh, we do trade a lot, and, uh, and Manitoba is a perfect example of that. We trade with the world. So to be protectionist on the one side while trading uh, with commodities on the other, it's very difficult to do nowadays. And we've had these problems for decades. Uh, Donald Trump just made it more obvious. So, Sylvain, how are we going to convince dairy farmers who have an, a, a guaranteed price set by uh by dairy boards in the respective provinces, how are we going to convince them that they're better off uh, living in a different realm, living in a different world? I think most, I mean, most dairy farmers, or dairy farmers 
are very smart people. They they the, they know that the writing is on the wall. They saw what happened with CETA, the deal with Europe, with TPP coming on stream, and more and more, uh, you're seeing more dairy products coming into our marketplace. And now we're looking at NASA 2.0, which could could or could not happen. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, but essentially, farmers are looking for a vision. They're looking for a strategy, and that has to come from Ottawa. And so far, what we see out of Ottawa are politicians just saying to dairy farmers, things are okay, we believe in supply management, but dairy farmers know that a lot of things are changing right now. Now, uh, Greg also referenced this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to get your take on this. Whereas you point out that milk consumption in Canada has been dropping for decades. Why is that? Oh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the aging population is one, mostly demographics. Uh, more immigrants are coming to Canada, and frankly, they don't drink milk. They just don't. It's not part of their dietary tradition. As Canadians, we don't realize it, but we do drink, we used to drink a lot of milk. Uh, we just drink less of it. But demand for other products have gone up, like yogurt and butter and things like that. So, again, you, you need to adapt. A cow will produce so much milk and so much fat, uh, buttermilk, we call it. Uh, and if you don't look at ingredients uh, instead of just managing supply, you miss out on opportunities. That's exactly what's happening with supply management. If you want to produce more butter or yogurt, you're still stuck with compensating farmers for their milk and butter fat at the same time. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is our guest. And Sylvain, have to ask you, is there anything to be feared if, as a con- consumer of more American products, perhaps making their way across the border into Canada in terms of quality of dairy? Is there anything that they do to milk in the United States that maybe we don't do in Canada that would have potentially Canadian consumers concerned? Well, yeah, well, growth hormones are allowed in the United States. There are not a whole lot of farms using growth hormones, but they are allowed in the United States. They're not in Canada. And uh, I would say that milk, in general, is of high quality in Canada, our dairy products as well. To um, maintain uh, a decent level of production capacity in Canada is desirable and needed. And right now, if we are to open borders to American milk and American dairy products, you could see the collapse of an entire sector overnight. That's why we need a plan. So it's just not uh, good enough to uh, welcome the Velveeta at uh, bargain basement prices. Uh, there are other, there, <laughs> there are other uh, conversations to be had around this industry, fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Well, some people are into Velveeta or Cheese Whiz, whatever your brand is. At the end of the day, uh, our dairy farmers just, they need the support. They need to become more competitive. And, and you're looking at a 15 to 20 year journey, and it has to start now before it's too late. The, the Trump administration is a short term problem, is a distraction. What we need is a, is a long term plan for the industry. All right, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Not a problem. Take care. Sylvain is at Dalhousie University. He is Dean of the Faculty of Management and Professor in Food Distribution and Policy with the Faculty of Agriculture. And once again, his article, Supply Management is Dead, 
finally. Hey, Brett, you were down at uh, IGF on Friday, part of the Blue Bombers of the locker room sale? The tent sale. Oh, the tent sale. You didn't even get to go in the locker room. Hey, uh, some of the Blue Bombers announcing today that they've changed their numbers. Oh. Their jersey numbers. Uh, linebacker Adam Big Hill wore number 44 for the BC Lions. That number not available for him as a member of the Blue Bombers. He'd been wearing 50. He will wear number four. Alex Ross will wear number five. Running back Johnny Augustine, I think, was wearing 35, will wear 25. And maybe the biggest controversy of training camp in terms of jersey numbers was the fact that Daniel Peterman, the Canadian receiver, was wearing number 71, formerly worn by Joe Poploski. Oh he will not wear that in the regular season. He will wear number 81 coming up in uh, in the home opener on Thursday night and throughout the 2018 season. Coach's show tonight at 7 o'clock, by the way, Michael Shea and Bob Irving. Later this morning, we will be learning of... Uh, Number of proposals to help set French language instruction in Manitoba schools back on track. That information is going to be coming from a new report being released by Manitoba's Partners for French Education, which is a community group committed to the preservation of French language education for future generations. So we thought we would do a check-in on the current state of French language education in our province. Joining us live now on 680 CGOB is Alain Laberge from Partners for French Education. Good morning, Alain. Good morning. So uh, when we talk about French education in Manitoba and the state of it, is French education in crisis? Is it in a good place or somewhere in between? I wouldn't say it's in crisis. I'd say it's in between. And this is the reason why we we had to sit together and uh, discuss uh, um, the situation, the state of the nation, to make sure that French education would get better and better and would become better. We we need to know that 52% of the students and Manitoba are affected by French education as of now. Now, are we talking about all classes that are taught in French, whether it's in an English school, whether it's a French immersion school, or simply a French school? Yeah, we get them all together, the SFM, the immersion students, and French as a second language. Okay, now what exactly uh, are some of the things that are off track for French language education? Well, you're probably aware that uh, back in October, the uh, position of assistant deputy minister was cut. Uh, and uh, this position was uh, in, in, in charge of all the uh, Bureau d'Education Française, the Bureau of Education in French, uh, which oversee everything that's done in French in this uh, province. So that was a big cut. There's a lot of positions that were not filled at the, at the Bureau d'Education Française either. So we kind of worried about losing all these positions, uh, less help towards the teacher, less help towards the student classrooms. So some folks, you know, look at that uh, positions being cut and and uh, not being refilled, Elan, and and they feel as though, well, you know, uh, this is the, the government has a mandate to save money, and this is how they're going about it. Others see it as a declining commitment to French education. I'm guessing you see it as the latter. Yes, yes, we do. It, it's a bit of both, but it's the latter as well. I mean, again, in, immersion is increasing. The growth is there. The francophone is there as well. Um, yes, we understand that somehow the government had to, to make cuts. Um, what we uh, don't really understand is the way they did it. Well, I mean, this position was really important to the francophone community. Those positions that are not filled right now are all important to the community as well. And again, we want to work in collaboration with the Ministry of Education and the province to make sure that we do the right choices. 
So the report's going to be released uh, 10.30 this morning at the Francophone uh, Manitoban Society coming up at 147 Provence this morning. But is any of the, the feedback that has been given to you, like we have such a large uh, Franco-Manitoban community here, so is any of this feedback on what is wor- not working coming from directly from parents of these kids who are in school? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've had like a summit held in April where more than 350 uh, people showed up. We had two information sessions uh, held in February where over 150 people showed up at each night. And we, we listened to them. We just uh, worked with them. And they, they, they let us know a lot of things that uh, thought that could be done in a better way. Alan, I want to give you an opportunity, uh, 45-second elevator pitch, so to speak, for the value of French education in Manitoba. Because there are those, you know, we're, we're probably three or almost four decades into heavy-duty French immersion and French language classes in Manitoba. Uh, there are some that have an opinion that it's not overly beneficial. Uh, why do you feel it is beneficial for it to be an option and a path for Manitoba students to, to travel down? Well, like you mentioned at first, it's, it's an option, but researchers have shown over the years that bilingual education is really helpful and really good to all students. Um, and, and these researches are not from yesterday. They were like, like 20 years ago, and it's still there. So, yeah, the brain works. Uh, some people would say harder. It's not harder. I mean, learning a second language is something common in Europe, something common mostly everywhere in the world. So, yes, learning a second language plus Canada's bilingual country. I mean, this is just natural to, to learn the second language. And uh, we believe that sharing the province, uh, French, Canadian, English, Canadian, all together, we can work these things up and like learn from each other's culture. All right, Alain Laberge from Partners for French Education. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Thanks for having me. Once again, there is going to be, uh, we're going to learn later this morning at 10.30 of a number of proposals to help set French language instruction in Manitoba schools back on track, coming from a new report being released by Manitoba's Partners for French Education. That's a community group committed to the preservation of French language education for future generations. I've always been env- envious of those who, that are educated in French and have done uh, bilingual uh, education, French immersion, which uh, you're a product of. Uh, would you go back and do it all over again? Again, Brett? I would. Uh, the only caveat for me, and I and I, we only have 10 seconds, so I can't get into this too deeply. I don't want to make this sound like it's a criticism of the system as a whole. I had so many wonderful teachers, but I did find that there were some, some things that didn't work well for me. Like when I went into calculus in university, there was basic math uh, terminology that was lost on me because I learned math from start to finish in French. So I had a hard time kind of integrating into English education. So that made things difficult. But overall, yeah, it was a great experience. I liked it. And uh, I don't know, I thought it was a, like we were a tighter school because it was smaller. So it was a, that was a good experience for me. We want to introduce you to somebody, and we were excited when this came across our desk. I just want to read uh, a couple of uh, heaps of praise that were in the news release here. Uh, One of them, and I'll just paraphrase it, but it says, It's been a long time since such a powerful and urgent Native American voice exploded onto the landscape of contemporary fiction. The book There, There introduces a brilliant new author 
at the start of a major career. And Tommy Orange is the name of this author. Going to be at McNally Robinson Grant Park tomorrow evening. So he's here to tell us about this book. Mr. Orange, welcome to CJOB. Thank you for the time this morning. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, I echo uh, Brett's sentiments. Uh, when we uh, learned the opportunity to visit with you, I was very excited uh, to do this. So without further ado, I'll, I'll kind of get jump right into it. And, you know, First Nations and, and Indigenous issues are, are in, in the under microscope here in Manitoba all the time. Manitoba having as large an Indigenous population as a percentage as any jurisdiction in North America. So we're, we're familiar with some of the, the trials and tribulations of First Nations people in our province. Uh, the, the United States and Canada treated Indigenous uh, people quite differently in terms of, uh, of, of settling, in, quote, in uh, quotation marks, North America. Maybe you could talk about some of those differences if you could, Tommy. Well, I don't know too much about um, the way things have gone down here. I, I've, I've heard uh, different things over the years uh, about how how it's the same and how it's different. But um, but I know in America, it's it's we have a president currently um, who is sort of has an unapologetic view of history and the way things happen in this country. He just said recently something about they tamed this land and we will not apologize for America and. Um, I don't know that Native people are looking for an apology necessarily, but we just want um, to acknowledge what happened and, you know, get to that baseline first. So the book, There, There, the novel, There, There, it comes with a description on the inside jacket, and it says it's a story of several people, each of whom has private reasons for traveling to the big Oakland powwow. One of those people is uh, Jackie Redfeather, newly sober and trying to make it back to the family she left behind in shame. So rather than me just read the entire description, I'm actually curious to know what, you know, what sort of life experience have you had that has driven you to write this powerful story? Well, um, I grew up in Oakland uh, and I worked in the, the native community in Oakland for, for many years from about 2005 to 2014. Um, and I, I have done a storytelling project and worked um, in data and, you know, just been around our community in Oakland and, knew that that story wasn't really being told, um, not as far as I could see. And uh, so I write, it's a mixture of, um, you know, my own biographical details that go into my characters and, and stuff that I just, that just came to me during the revision process. I think if you, you know anything about American culture and American cities, Oakland certainly has a reputation as it pertains to uh, not only uh, sports teams and the fans of those teams, but in, in terms of the contrast between San Francisco and Oakland, they're, they're sort of like night and day. So, so talk about Oakland, California from a Native American uh, perspective. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's home for me and for, for many Native people who grew up in the city. Um, and it does have that reputation like you talk about, and it, um, it's also been gentrified in the past five years in a pretty significant way, and a lot of people have had to move um, move away from their home. And, um, 
you know, for native people, what's home is important and our connection to environment and land. Um, it's, it's not different if we live in the city. Um, so it's been sad to, I haven't been able to afford to move back. Um, been, I've been living outside of Oakland for the past three years. Where are you now? Uh, it's a small town on the way to, um, Yosemite. Okay. And, uh, the Institute of American Indian Arts. I see that uh, you're a recent graduate from the MFA program. Uh, where is the institute? It's in New Mexico. Okay, and uh, what? How large is this school? Uh, it's a it's a college that's been around since the '70s, um, but the MFA program is only is only about five years old. It's a relatively small program, but um, I'm hearing that. Based on uh, Therese Mayock Hartberry's, um, I graduated with her in 2016, and she sold her book within two weeks of me selling mine. Um, and with our books doing well, uh, I think a lot more. I think the program's going to grow. What's the goal of your story? Why Why are you sharing it, uh, Tommy? Is it therapeutic, or are are you hoping people will take notice and and maybe start some other conversation here with regard to change? It's probably both. I mean. Um, I would never, you know, I, I never thought of it like I'm writing because I need help. Um, but it certainly is cathartic. It can be. And um, so, I, you know, I, I did it because I'm driven to. And if I, if I can change the conversation or, or start conversations uh, that, that have actual change in the world, that would be the ultimate goal, I think. Re- the one word that comes to mind is, uh, at least in, in Canada, is reconciliation. We've been, you know, a lot of people have been working hard towards that for a number of years now, but particularly just in the last handful of years. From your perspective, south of the border, do you think that uh, reconciliation is being achieved? I do not. Um, I think the, the the amount of misperceptions about who we are and uh, what it what it means to be native is is. Uh, it's a lot to overcome, and um, I'm just, you know, trying to put my part in to change um, the way we think about Native people in our country. But, you know, like I said, our president, our current president is openly um, hateful to Native people, and uh, currently it doesn't seem like we're going in the right direction at all. So I don't know that how much hope, hope I have uh, currently, but uh, I believe in how art can change people's hearts and minds, and books and uh, particularly novels, how they can build empathy in people. Um, So I'm not hopeless entirely, um, but it's also a bleak picture. How how has a president openly exhibited this this feeling that you just conveyed with with how you perceive his feelings towards uh, First Nations in in the United States? Well, I'll give you one example. There's this whole thing with Elizabeth Warren and her uh, previous claims to being native and then sort of backtracking on that and him nicknaming her Pocahontas and uh, basically sort of using that as a racial slur. And um, he's, he said in front of, in court, he's, he's talking uh, to native people and saying that uh, basically in front of everyone that you don't look native, native American to me. So deciding who we are and what we should look like and, um, and in addition to that, all the, the different uh, land that he that has been protected for a long time, he's just stripping away a lot to protect 
our land, uh, which is obviously important to us, and a lot of sacred sites as well. Yeah, National Monument site in, in Utah comes to mind immediately for me, uh, Tommy. Yeah, Bears Ears? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty much the worst. <laughs> so outside of Donald Trump, what, what do you think needs to happen? You said the reconciliation is not being achieved. Uh, what uh, can regular people do uh, to help make this happen? I mean, I think an immediate thing that anyone can do is, is Google your local Native organizations and donate. There's donate buttons. It's very easy to do, and Native organizations are, are always in need of funding. And usually Native, Native organizations, we're the ones who, not we, but they're the ones who, um, sorry, I worked in, with Native organizations for many years. They know what to do with the money. Um, so I think donating to just to um, important Native organizations is a good start. Well, Tommy, uh, we hope you enjoy your visit to Winnipeg, and uh, this book is uh, a fascinating uh, tale. There must be uh, some lived experience in here, I'm guessing. There's a lot. If you know me, <laughs> anyone who knows me uh, knows that I'm, I'm, the characters more resemble me than anybody else. Well, thank you, Tommy. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Tommy Orange is the author of the novel There, There, and he will be at McNally Robinson, Grant Park, tomorrow night to launch the novel. And if you want any more information about us, you can just, about the novel, you can just shoot us an email, brett at cjob.com or gmac at cjob.com. Give me a kiss to build a dream on, and my imagination will thrive upon that kiss. If there's one kind of music that I can get lost in with zero basic knowledge of the music, it's jazz. I don't need to know the artist. I don't need to know where they're from. Nothing about it. Put on some good jazz music and I am entranced. Really? Oh, absolutely. Like all forms of jazz? Or? Not all. I like this. I like the just kind of the nice soothing, the slow jazz. I like yeah. this. Yeah, I like the, uh, the, the sound of a, a good snare drum, I think. That kind of jazz gets me. Winnipeg Summer Festival season starting to get into full swing. And on Thursday, this year's Winnipeg International Jazz Festival mm -hmm. kicks off. So to give us a preview, we're joined by the Artistic Director, Michael Falk. Mr. Falk, good morning to you, sir. How's it going? Going well. Did I miscategorize that uh, piece we just heard? Would that be slow jazz or would that be something else uh, altogether, well, Michael? Sounds like it's in the ballpark. That sounds like some Jill Barber. It is Jill um, Barber. Well done. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I definitely, Jill has put out two jazz records, so, you know, I think you're right on the money. Well, and that's one of the things that jumped out at me as I was looking at the lineup for this. And to see the lineup, you can go to jazzwinnipeg.com, and there's a full schedule for the, the 10 days here. But there are... You know, I mean, people might hear the word jazz, and for some, maybe it's a turnoff. I don't know. Uh, but there are a ton of artists here that I would not initially consider to be jazz. Am I mm. wrong in that? Yeah, there's definitely some, you know, there's definitely some not jazz. But, uh, you know, I think pretty much any music festival you go to these days will have some, some stuff that's kind of outside of the, you know, the boundaries of whatever genre they, they happen to fall in, so... Yeah, and I guess what I was getting at there is there there really is something for everyone at the Winnipeg Jazz yeah, Festival. Definitely, yeah. We, you know, we're a, we're a, you know, 
uh, fun little festival kicking off summer and in a city like Winnipeg, we want to make sure that we can kind of get as many Winnipeggers engaged as possible. Now, when you say little, are, are you being modest there, Michael? Because this oh. this this festival is incredibly <laughs> popular. It's true, and um, I think uh, I guess uh, it's a it's a small team that's making this big event happen. And so sometimes when I I think of us as a little festival, it's it's mostly because there's you know there's only two full time staff right now, right, and uh, and then a bunch of part time and, and seasonal staff. And so it's a it's a it's a great little team here that's that's making making all this happen. So I see that you've got free shows all week. So let's talk about that for a second, because I just uh, I've just caught on now as I look at the calendar that mm-hmm. each day has a different theme. Is yeah. that how, is that how it always works, or is that new? No, this is brand new, and uh, there's a couple of kind of reasons for that. Um, the the first one is that what we've done is our big opening weekend party. You know, in the past, we've either scaled that back for the closing weekend, or we've kind of changed the configuration of Old Market Square a little bit to kind of you know, make it a little smaller and more intimate. This year, we're just keeping the big setup. We're going to keep it rolling all 10 days. Um, and so we're bringing in some heavy hitters from all over the world. There's more touring acts that are going to hit Old Market Square than ever before. Um, it's a pretty neat, uh, you know, pretty, you know, ambitious thing we're going for here. And so to help people out with that, you know, we've tried to, you know, there's no hard and fast rules here, but definitely uh, we've tried to kind of give each night you know, some sort of indication of what the general vibe is going to be, right? So on Latin night, indeed, all of those bands are Latin bands. On swing night, you know, all of those acts are going to be playing swing music. On pop land, it definitely skews a bit more indie rock and pop. Hip-hop and soul is, is pretty self-explanatory. Horns Up has got some big, you know, big brass bands. So it's, uh, it, you know, trying to just help people, you know, make sure that they can find the nights that they're going to love. Now, if Jill Barber isn't uh, spectacular enough as an act, the venue for her performance is also mm-hmm. spectacular, isn't it, Michael? Totally. Yeah, we, uh, we've we kind of fallen in love with Knox United Church. It's a, it's a big, beautiful, historic church on the edge of Central Park, and it sounds fantastic. It's easily the best-sounding room in the city. Um, and so I think for certain kinds of music, it makes so much sense to just put it in a space that, that people can have a really great listening experience in. And so for Jill, especially, it just made so much sense to put her in the big old church and, and give people, you know, a unique concert experience. What is it about that, that particular building? You say it's the best sounding room in the city. That's uh that's a rather bold statement. Now I want to, I'm curious, I got to come check this out. Well, I don't know. I got, I got a hundred percent in audio mathematics when I was in school. So I was, you know, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've done the tests, man. I've done the tests. Um, uh, well, we have done some tests. I mean, not that extensively, but we've, um, it's a really, it's a, it's a long reverb decay, but it's a smooth reverb decay and it's really controlled. And so while the room has a lot of ambience to it, you know, in some big rooms and some old rooms, you know, you'll get certain frequencies or certain parts of the sound that'll kind of get accentuated or it'll ring a little weirdly. And in this room, it just it's just smooth. Um, and so that's a nature of the dimensions. It's a nature of the, the arc of the ceiling. All of those things come into play. And, um, you know, and whoever designed it just did it right and, uh, and nailed it. So I think, um, you know, hats off to a time when you know, natural acoustics were a, a huge part of, of architecture and design. So, um, 
I'll drink to that. I'll drink to that yeah. uh, twice if I have to. Uh, MichaelJazzWinnipeg.com to see the entire lineup. Uh, two things I want to point out real quick uh, before I close my mouth. The Flaming Lips, that's a big deal mm-hmm. that they are coming to Burton yeah. Cummings Theatre talking about an uh, outstanding venue for that particular band. And man, oh man, what a homecoming this is going to be for the Brothers Landreth uh, performing with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's amazing. Those boys are those boys are fantastic. Joey Joey actually lives in my building and so I get to I get to kinda of hear him practice a little bit now and then coming up to coming up through the windows and it's uh, it's great. Love those guys and it's gonna be a really sweet show with, with them on the symphony. Uh, one of the acts that I wanted to tell you about or wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. who <laughs> I just love the name <laughs> Harpoonist and the Axe Murderer. Yeah. Uh, that's happening on Thursday, June 21st at Knox United Church. Who are Harpoonist and the Axe Murderer? They are a blues duo from the West Coast. And um, if you uh, if you deconstruct their name a little bit, you'll notice that there's a harp and an axe. And so a harp is also a harmonica and an axe is also a guitar. So you can probably, you know, with a little bit of deduction, figure, oh, this is a guitar and harmonica duo. So, um it's them and a drummer and Andrina Turan, who used to be in Shikamin, um, Winnipegger. It's going to be touring with them. And so they, uh, these guys played the Folk Festival a few years ago. They have sold out shows at the Park Theater and played big shows all over town in the past. So we're excited to have them. And we're going to put them in a big old church and see how it goes. I think it's going to be a really cool space for a blues show. So. Michael, this is exciting stuff. Things get underway Thursday. Uh, you typically yeah. have, uh, I know that there's the free stage down in Old Market Square. Do you have like a formal opening ceremony or anything like that? Tell us how you kick things off. We kick things off with the Winnipeg Jazz Collective, which are some of the city's best players um, in like a bit of a jazz supergroup. Um, there's no opening ceremonies. We just say, hey, welcome. Thanks for coming. Let's get to the music. And where does one get, t- like, do you have to buy tickets ahead of time or can you just show up at the venue uh, for at least well, the ones that are paid shows? Yeah, obviously Old Market Square is free for 10 days. But then for our shows at the Burt and the Garrick and Knox United and the Western Cultural Center, all of those shows, you can get tickets through jazzwinnipeg.com. Um, for the Burton Cummings Theatre ones, those all go through Ticketmaster. So uh, you get them through there. Um, or you can come down to our office. Uh, we're in the art space building underneath Cinematech, so we can sell you tickets right here too. Any traffic implications while the festival is on? Well, yes, because because we shut down a couple streets for opening weekend. You know, things get a little, you know, things get a little bogged down here. So if you can bike or you can walk or you can bus, that's definitely encouraged. Um, if you're going to drive, we just, you know, you, you be prepared that it's going to move a little slower than usual, and uh, you know. Find a, a nice little parkade off in the corner of downtown somewhere and make a day of it. Michael, we've enjoyed this very much. We'll uh, check in with you over the next uh, couple of weeks, if that's okay with you. Sounds good. Love it, guys. Thank you, Michael. Michael Falk. Uh, Falk is the artistic director, Jazz Winnipeg, Winnipeg Jazz Festival. And you and I were both, we when we both got copies of the lineup and the schedule to hear, the exact same band jumped off the page for both of us at the same time. Quite funny. The Sons of Django, like Django Unchained. Uh, they're from Saskatchewan. Did you notice that? I did. Yeah. Which is, yeah. 
It's all good. I'd also point out, he mentioned uh, the Popland Night. That is Saturday, June 16 at Old Market Square. And uh, the closing artist for that day, starting at midnight, Mm -hmm. is a young uh, Winnipeg singer Mm. named Foja. She's actually been interviewed a couple of times on this radio station. I had the pleasure of interviewing her once. Uh, She's a a rising star, just a sensational voice. Just one of dozens of magnificent artists that are on this list. So go to jazzwinnipeg.com for more information. And the ha- or you can follow the, the hashtag on social media, JazzWPG. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry and Channel Lee Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. Na, 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 na.